Hey, Real Talk podcast listeners, you know, nurse practitioners are being encouraged to open their own clinics as part of Alberta's plan to address a growing shortage of family doctors. These NPs are qualified registered nurses with additional education to take their skills to the next level. While the government's decision appears to be a no-brainer, not everybody loves it, most especially family doctors. In this episode, we get into what NPs can and cannot do and take a look at whether or not they're going to be able to fix healthcare in Alberta. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to this episode of Real Talk and open with a question. How much do you know about the work that nurse practitioners do? If you've been paying attention to news across the country, it doesn't matter, quite frankly, which province you're looking at. There are serious strains on our healthcare system. One of those biggest strains is a shortage of family doctors. There's also a whole bunch of job postings that are going unfilled, including postings for nurse practitioners. So what do they do? What do they bring to the table? How are they different from RNs and LPNs? And what are we to make of the announcement just a short while ago from Alberta's health minister, Adriana LaGrange, as the province prepares to, well, completely shake up the model that's been in play for the last number of decades. The minister encouraging nurse practitioners to open up their own clinics Essentially, the province believes that it'll identify gaps in the healthcare system using nurse practitioners. Uh, the minister's comments as they take on patients, they will offer services based on their scope of practice, training, and expertise. You're seeing some criticism of the move. You're seeing some celebrate it. So we thought we'd dig in, understand a little bit more about the profession, understand what nurse practitioners bring to the table, and even explore some of the angles that haven't been covered in the mainstream media coverage of this, like job opportunities. That's all coming up in this episode of Real Talk, which is presented by Business Career College. If you're one of those folks right now that's tuning into this episode of Real Talk and you're looking for a new career, you're feeling stuck or stagnant in what you're doing right now, but here's the rub. Here's the problem. You don't have a university degree? You can get started today as an insurance professional with Business Career College. You know, in Canada, insurance agents earn starting wages just under $60,000 a year. It can soon rise to more than $90,000 annually, and all you need to do is take an approved course and pass your licensing exam. Business Career College offers industry-leading approved courses in life insurance, property and casualty insurance, plus their expert instructors are passionate about helping you launch your new career. And right now, there's a great offer for real talkers. You can knock 15% off any business career college insurance course with the code REALTALK. The promo code, all one word, REALTALK, is where you get started today at businesscareercollege.com. Let's talk healthcare. We're going to jump right into this with a Real Talk Roundtable. Dr. Alex Clark is an internationally known administrator, researcher, and advocate for well-being and effectiveness in academic work and workplaces. He's worked in post-secondary education for more than 20 years in the province of Alberta, the former dean of health disciplines at Athabasca University. He's currently AU's president. Alex is also 
a registered nurse. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Knopp Sahoda is an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Disciplines at Athabasca University. Uh, she's taught at various courses in their nurse practitioner graduate program. Uh, the doctor works clinically as a nurse practitioner, uh, providing remote clinical care in Alberta First Nations communities. And we're joined by a recent graduate as well on this morning's roundtable. Uh, Chantel Gray has been working as a registered nurse for 11 years, currently out of Grand Prairie, Alberta. She just completed the Masters of Nursing NP program through Athabasca U, and she'll be starting her first job as a nurse practitioner at the Grand Prairie Primary Care Network coming up in just a few weeks. To the three of you, welcome to the show, and thank you for making time for us. Uh, Dr. Clark, why don't we start with you? The announcement from the health minister just a short time ago obviously made a big impression. <laughs> you might say it made waves across the province. Some people think that this is just a fantastic solution. Some are a little bit more hesitant to endorse it. Why don't you take us into how you feel about utilizing nurse practitioners to address some of the strains on the healthcare system? Yeah, thanks, Ryan, and good morning, everyone. I think this is uh, really, really exciting. Um, you, you've shared with us already some of the strains that we know are on health systems, uh, not just in Alberta and not just in Canada, but across the world. Um, and uh, in, in response to these challenges, uh, there are things that you can do, like you're saying, more structural changes, like changing the way your health system works. But this is really about using uh, nurses that are really highly trained and educated nurse practitioners in new and different ways uh, to provide the right care at the right time in the right ways. And these are the right health professionals to do that. And I think it's really, really exciting. I've called it a no-brainer. Um, in the past, uh, and I think it's really exciting in terms of the benefits, um, in terms of the cost savings and potential efficiencies, but really ultimately more than anything, it's really about benefiting our patients. Uh, and I know our nurse practitioners really care about that, and we as educators really care about that too. Uh, before we go any further, Dr. Napsahota, maybe you can help us understand, people are, I, I think, generally familiar, or, or at least we think we are, us laypersons, with the work that nurses do. But we know that there's LPNs, we know there's RNs, we know there's nurse practitioners. Can, can you kind of spell out for us what NPs or nurse practitioners bring to the table and, and how their training and expertise differs from some of their colleagues in the nursing field? Sure, thank you and good morning. Well, nurse practitioners really are expert nurses first. They are nurses to begin with, so they've trained already in an undergraduate program. They've done at least four years of training. Um, in that nursing model, the holistic, whole person type of model, then they join a graduate program. So in Alberta, nurse practitioners have to be trained as graduate nurse practitioners, so a, a master's degree. And that training is anywhere from, it's about a two-year full-time program. Most of our students work part-time and they complete that program over four or four years, about four years or so. Um, they have to have excellent experience before they come into the program. And in fact, to license in Alberta as a nurse practitioner, you need at least 3,500 or 4,000 hours. So a few years of at least full-time work as an RN. So nurse practitioners really start off um, as specialists in their area. So specialty nurses who become more experts in that area. 
Okay, so we have uh, a recent graduate joining us, as mentioned today, and, and Chantel, congratulations on that. Obviously a big deal. You've been working full-time. You've been studying at Athabasca University. So you've, I would imagine you've, you've had some long days and probably some, some long nights as well. But, but as we mentioned in the introduction, you've been working as an RN, a registered nurse, for more than a decade already. What prompted you personally uh, to decide to take that next step and, and level up, so to speak? Um, thank you for having me. Uh, so I decided to um, further my education and become um, an advanced practice nurse or a nurse practitioner um, because I see the immense need in our community. Um, our local ratios of family practitioners to patients is about 0.9 providers per thousand patients. Um, so we really are in dire straits here in our community. We do not have primary care providers and I really wanted to be part of that solution I've seen patients suffer. I've seen the confusion about how to access the system um, and people just really having nowhere to go. And I just wanted to be part of changing that for people. I do care about my patients um, and I just really want to see people thrive in the system as opposed to struggle and be frustrated by it. I just want to, to clarify or, or, or just dig a little bit deeper in that. Did you say 0.9 practitioners per thousand people? In other words, there's one per 10,000 people. Yeah, so that's the the most recent statistics as of 20, 2021, 2022 in the Grand Prairie PCN catchment area. And and give us a sense for, for those of us that don't work in the healthcare system or have an understanding of, of what, like, in your mind, I mean, obviously you can dream big and say you'd love to have one doctor for every 300 people or, or one nurse practitioner for every 500 people, but what would be, like, uh, you know, a number, an approximate number that would represent a well-staffed healthy system I, i'm guessing it's not one for ten thousand no definitely not and i don't think we really truly understand because our system has been struggling for so many years like we really don't have a great idea of what a well-balanced system looks like i think we know what the status quo is which is you know where your primary care providers are taking care of panels of up to 1500 2000 patients or more in areas like this but I don't think we have a good understanding of what a great system looks like, and we'll get there, but we have a lot of work to do to get there. Okay. I, I, want, I want to reference uh, Dr. Clark. You uh, contributed an, an opinion piece, an op-ed uh, to the Edmonton Journal a short time ago. We'll put that in the show notes so people can read it in its entirety, uh, published on November 16th. Uh, the headline reads, Nursing Practitioners, a Solution Hidden in Plain Sight. As far as you know, is is this something that, that – the health ministry, the provincial government, maybe other provinces across the country have been considering? I mean, is this is this something that, that maybe nurse practitioners or associations have been lobbying for for quite some time? Has this been part of the conversation or or is this something that, that Alberta is doing that would represent somewhat of an innovative approach? Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question, Ryan. And I do think there's lots of precedents uh, across uh, the world uh, going back uh, indeed many decades uh, for highly educated and trained nurses and then nurse practitioners to provide this. Uh, and whilst it's innovative in the way that we've provided care um, at the right time and in the right places in the province, there's just so many precedents for this. And there's lots of research as well. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, as you uh, grapple with difficult challenges in terms of, you know, providing the right care at the right times, uh, and Alberta is a very big province. Uh, you know, we think of urban uh, and the challenges there, but, you know, as you move throughout the province and think of rural 
uh, settings, kind of like Grand Prairie, uh, around Chantel's uh, catchment area. Uh, it's, it's a really, really challenging prospect to provide this care. So whilst it's innovative and new in the province, there's rock solid evidence in terms of uh, the research. And there's also rock solid precedence in terms of these models working really well and working really well, not just for the system, but more than anything, working really well for our patients as well, because they're the most important ones here. There, there's a, there's a, a business opportunity here. Uh, there, there's certainly employment opportunities here. The province, as mentioned, has has is encouraging nurse practitioners to open their own clinics. I know that the public is 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 waiting on or seeking more information on on what this is going to look like, whether it's a, a fee for service type scenario or or, or how they're paid. Uh, Doctor Napsota, let's let's say hypothetically or or maybe in practice, uh, we don't have to imagine too far ahead. Uh, somebody walks into a clinic, maybe. It's it's a brand new clinic that's just opened in their community. Uh, they've been going to walk-in clinics for several years. They haven't been able to get a family doctor, and then all of a sudden they see this investment. Somebody hangs a shingle, and here's this new clinic, and it's run by nurse practitioners. Can you give us some some real-life examples of services that, that they would be able to receive, uh, perhaps treatments they'd be able to receive, and maybe what they would not be able to receive or what would not be offered at a clinic like this? Well, really, nurse practitioners have the full scope of practice. It all depends on the individual nurse practitioner's knowledge, skill, and judgment. And we, our scope is essentially hard to distinguish from a family practitioner. So you would get every, a primary care practitioner deals from, with patients from cradle to grave and everything in between. So really, it would be hard to distinguish the practice of a physician versus a nurse practitioner. Um, and similar to a, a family doctors, we would refer if we needed to. So if something we felt was beyond the scope of, of our practice or our comfort practice, we then refer to specialists, we refer to our family medicine colleagues, and the care really um, doesn't really look that much different, to be honest. So where what, what what are the limitations though? Like my understanding is that nurse practitioners can can prescribe. Um, I don't I don't I don't know if there's caps on that or limits on that. I, I'm assuming there's not like no. small surgeries, uh, but I don't know. I don't want to make assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, it it all depends on the nurse practitioner's training, and it depends on their skill and judgment. So really anything within the scope of practice of a, of a family physician would be that similar to an NP. NPs can prescribe, they can order tests, they can do order treatments, refer to specialists. There, there isn't really much that is off the table as long as this, the NP has been trained in that area and has the knowledge, skill, and judgment, just like any profession, health profession. So Chantel, do you, I'm curious to hear about your studies at AU. Do you, do you specialize as, as an NP? Like are there, are there, are there some skills or training that one NP may have that another may not? Can you tell us about your journey and some of the decisions that you made? Um, so I think I can speak a little bit to it. Um, so I, Athabasca University's program is you graduate as a family, all ages nurse practitioner, which again, um, has already been spoken to that's cradle to grave any common health problem that occurs in the lifespan so no we're not specialists we're generalists just like family providers would be so we learn you know about common medical concerns and procedures and things that would affect people from birth all the way into their older adult years 
Um, so it's a very intensive program. There's a lot of things to learn during that time. Um, where you kind of become more specialized is, you know, where you where you choose to work, um, what extra courses that you take, um, what your interests are, because they're out there. And, you know, thankfully, uh, a lot of physician organizations that do courses have become, you know, more pro NP and have started allowing us to take part in some of this extra training um, to provide additional services through primary care. One example would be, you know, inserting um, intrauterine devices for birth control that, you know, that requires some advanced training. And there are physician groups in the country that offer training programs for that, that do allow NPs to partake in that and become competent and confident providing that to their patients. So it really is whatever the nurse practitioner is interested in and goes on to kind of learn that becomes what makes up their practice. But we all graduate with a the baseline skills and abilities to act the same as a family physician, basically mm. the same. Yeah, interesting. You say basically the same. And, and and this next one I want to put in front of all three of you. Dr. Clark will go to you first, but, but I want to pick the three of your brains. And I, I want to officially welcome those uh, real talkers that are joining us right now on our YouTube live stream that are, that are live streaming this show on the Mixler audio app presented by California Closets uh, on the live chat. A ton of feedback here. Kathy says, I think it's a good addition to GPs, to general practitioners. But but people need to understand they're not the same. Tracy says nurse practitioners are not family doctors. They add to the system in a good way, uh, but they may not be the solution. Erica says there isn't one single panacea to fix healthcare. But I've yet to hear a downside to this idea other than the Physicians Association getting a little <laughs> territorial about it, uh, which seems kind of petty says Erica. Let, let's go to what she's talking about. Here, here's a, a, a Twitter thread from the Alberta Medical Association shortly after the health minister's announcement. Uh, says the AMA, our healthcare system needs more of everything, but people most of all. All health professionals are in short supply. Building capacity is good if it doesn't simply create new problems, as today's announcement about independent nurse practitioners does. Uh, my words now, that's shots fired for sure. Back to the AMA's tweet. They say family doctors provide cradle-to-grave care. We love team-based care, but the best medical advice is often only from a physician, and there are not enough people to fill open jobs right now. Even some nurse practitioner positions have gone unfilled for two years. Uh, I'm going to go on. The thread goes on, and people can check it out themselves. It wraps by saying, we know that this announcement made many family medicine specialists feel less valued. We understand and appreciate the critical and valuable work you do for Albertans. We'll continue to make sure that the government and Albertans do, too. We need you. That from the Alberta Medical Association. So, Dr. Clark, fair to say they're not exactly embracing this with open arms. Um, How do you process what you see from the Alberta Medical Association? Yeah, and I can appreciate, you know, change is difficult, but but we do need change in our health system. And I'm sure many of those working in the health system uh, and our patients uh, and their families would agree. Uh, we have to try different things. And we are experiencing, you know, think what, what you were doing two years ago, three years ago around the COVID uh, epidemic and pandemic. Uh, these were really tough times and they created really unprecedented changes uh, from local to global across the world. Uh, and we need really sophisticated responses. We also need responses that are grounded in data. 
Uh, and one of the things I know um, my colleagues who, who are physicians would appreciate how important data is. And, and we have really sophisticated research methods, randomized controlled trials, where you can try out different types of health professional and different care models. Uh, and these uh, research methods have shown uh, that nurse practitioners can provide as effective and as efficient care. Uh, they're fully credentialized um, and they're extremely credible. And they're also really trusted by patients. Uh, and that's not me saying this. Uh, it's not Athabasca University. Uh, that's what the research data shows. Uh, and then I think it is important for us to all embrace this and recognize that healthcare is a team sport. Um, it's not about one solution. It's not about one health professional, but together in the right ways, we can make the biggest difference for our patients. Mm. Dr. Nop Soto, what would you add to that? I just like to say that actually NPs have been doing this work for years already. The only difference is going to be the payment model. And we are not necessarily advocating for a payment, um, a fee for service model. And I don't think that that is something we should be looking at. And I understand they're still negotiating what what these what what it will look like but we want to be equitable we want we want to work with our colleagues we've never wanted to be siloed um we team-based care is researched and tried and true and that's what we want and we've been working with family physicians for years we just haven't been able to be paid in this type of way that we can independently do it so we're 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 asking to work together but have our own our own piece as well with directly with patients. Uh, Jennifer, can you can you can I sort of like can you fact check me here because I want to make sure I understand this correctly. But but there are obviously nurse practitioners working in Alberta right now, right? Like a lot of them um, out of uh, primary care networks or physicians offices, right? But there's not an opportunity mm -hmm. um, to direct bill, right? So so the the way that it's set up right now is it like there would be. Uh, either fee for service, meaning like if you do this and this and this, then you bill for those services and you're paid for those services or salary, right? Is that, is that kind of the two basic structures? That that's correct. Nurses, nurse practitioners currently have to be in a salaried position to get paid. Um, there are a handful of NPs who have gone into private practice and bill the patients directly for for their services because they've seen that there's such a gap and with patients trying to find find uh, a primary care practitioner and there's been no mechanism for for paying them through the public system so there have been a handful of nurses nurse practitioners who have done that but typically nurse practitioners have to be employed by an organization or somebody to get paid, so in a salaried position. So this will allow NPs to go out on their own and be paid via the public funds and and manage their own practice. Chantel, you had decided to make your career move, right? You're working as an RN, you decide to enroll at AU and, and you complete this program. You had obviously decided to do that long before you saw this announcement coming. Like this, the, the timing of this is very interesting as the province looks to roll this out right around the time you're graduating and ready to go. Um, I'm curious to know uh, if we can get a little bit personal, how you're processing that. Like, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Do you see this as not just a career opportunity, but but a business opportunity? I mean, how, how will things change uh, in the context of how you personally will operate? What does the announcement mean for you? Um, I'm really excited. And I know I've talked to colleagues that are just so excited about this opportunity. Um, 
for a lot of reasons. I think that, you know, that like Dr. Clark has alluded to, change is really hard and it's scary. And I think that there's kind of been this longstanding history of different groups within the medical system being very territorial about their roles and their scope and, you know, change is hard. But I think it was also spoken to that we don't, there's no move to replace anybody within the system. It's, there's more than enough patients and more than enough care to go around. Um, I'm excited because this really expands my opportunity to work to my full scope. I don't, right now, before this announcement and before all this came through, you know, nurse practitioners are only able to work in very limited roles. They're on their own, they're working in these very niche settings that somebody has created a job posting for. They're not able to work to their full scope and ability. They're not able to be general practitioners. You're kind of pinholed into whatever job you can find. So you have a limited ability to offer your full potential to patients because you have to work within the confines of your job. So what this model means to me and what I'm so grateful for is that it gives me the opportunity to be paid fairly and equitably for the services I'm able to provide to patients and to work in a setting I want to work in. It, you know, it's, it's just a really great opportunity. I also respect that solving this problem in primary care isn't just going to come from nurse practitioners. I think that that's a valid point. It's not, nurse practitioners aren't the only answer. We also have to train and recruit physicians without a doubt. I have physicians I work with every single day in the clinic that I work with and I consult with them and they're a very valuable member of the team, but doing that takes time. And right now we have a huge untapped workforce of nurse practitioners in this province that are willing to, you know, not everybody's going to leave their positions with a PCN or in these little niche clinics, but a lot of them would probably like the opportunity to be family practitioners and to help solve that problem. And we can't right now because we can't pay ourselves. Mm. And then that's a really huge barrier. Yeah, massive, obviously. Um, I, I don't say this often, but I'm going to say that in our live chat right now, Stephen kind of speaks for me. Uh, I think Stephen's throwing a bullseye here, and he says, doesn't somebody have to try something new in the healthcare system? He says, like, so many pieces uh, were or are so broken and so disconnected, no matter if you like the current government or not, something has to be done. And I, I feel like I would sign my name to Stephen's comment as well. I understand that some people may feel like the, the, the UCP. I mean, I know maybe the three of you will get uncomfortable if I drag politics into this or maybe you won't. Uh, but but that's kind of what we do here is I, I understand that some people think that Danielle Smith is the greatest thing since sliced bread and, and, and other people think that she's completely out to lunch. But the fact of the matter is no provincial government uh, since inception has fixed the healthcare system, and I think that you could make a compelling argument that the healthcare system has never been under such strain. I mean, there's just the number, there's the facts. People can't get family doctors. People are waiting 18 months for surgeries that they need. I mean, you name it. I mean, there, there, there's a full-blown opioid crisis. And then you add on to the fact that you have healthcare professionals, frontline workers in particular, that are quite frankly dealing with PTSD from the pandemic. Many of them are completely burned out. Some of them are closing down their practices. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago here on the show, we spoke to uh, Dr. Bradley Martin, a family doc out of Hinton, who's who's leaving his family clinic for his own mental health. He'll still provide services at the hospital, but he is literally leaving his clinic to basically save his family. And so I think that, that people that are ignoring this and pretending like we can just continue on with status quo uh, are fooling themselves and maybe allowing their political opinions or their allegiances to get in the way of 
common sense. Uh, Dr. Clark, I'm throwing you a real hot potato right now, but I don't know if you want to add to that at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, we're dealing with very unprecedented times. Uh, and, and, you know, you talk about health systems being strained. And the, the reality is that they're strained all over the world because for two years, um, our health professionals were, were providing care in a global pandemic. And the impacts on the healthcare systems were not just in relation to the pandemic, they were in relation to all the healthcare that was delayed or postponed or otherwise compromised during those two years of global pandemic. And then that has created unprecedented impacts over time, um, which is very, very challenging. And when you're faced with strains and demands, one of the most important things to do, and for sure you can do different shiny things, one of the most important things to do is use what you have better. And I think you've heard from Chantelle and from Jennifer, using the nurse practitioners that are already in Canada. Um, and we educate at Athabasca University, one in three across the country. Um, so there's a, a ready supply of really well-trained graduates there, and we need to use them to their highest contribution. Um, and using what you have better is a really good solution whenever you do have a problem. Uh, and so whichever government or whichever jurisdiction is involved, uh, I think that's a really sensible strategy. I'm curious to know what this means for, for enrollment at, at AU. And I don't know uh, if it's if it's you, Alex, or Jennifer that should speak to this. Uh, maybe Jennifer will go to you first. This, this to me, is going to light a fire under our people. I mean, we've been mentioning it on the show that, you know, people will see this announcement uh, in particular, maybe people that are working already as RNs like Chantel uh, that may see a new opportunity here, potentially looking for a new situation or a new challenge or a new opportunity and, and move forward. What has this meant for enrollment? What do you see, um, you know, reflected? Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's a little too soon to say, you know, since this announcement, that's like a week and a half ago. But but over the past year, over the past couple of years, are, are you seeing an uptick in interest in this career? If you look at our enrollment numbers over the last three or four years, they've been fairly steady. We have the large, we do by far have the largest program in Canada. In fact, our program is bigger than all other programs combined. So we currently have over 600 students, nurse practitioner students in our program. The majority of our students, um, about 20% 20 or so of those are Alberta-based students with the majority being from Ontario being our, our largest province, you'd probably expect that. But one of the great things about our program is that we are from an open university and that we take students from, from all parts of the country. So you, you can live in your rural community and join our university and do your program that way. Um, students need to get preceptors, which has been one of our limiting factors is that um, students not only do a didactic type of portion of their training, but they also do hands-on clinical experience for at least 800 clinical hours. Now, those experiences are typically with nurse practitioners, but not always because we really do have a lack of available NPs as preceptors, expert preceptors. So we rely closely with our physician colleagues as well for those hours. Um, one of the problems that we are having is finding these preceptors, as I've said, and then being able to acknowledge them appropriately and looking at different ways that we can do that. Dr. Clark, have you seen 
like from your position, obviously, like in your career, you've, you've obviously as the president of Athabasca University right now, it's, it's, it's a different role that you've taken on. Uh, but, but previously the Dean of Health Disciplines, what sort of trends have you seen at, a, at maybe a bit more of a zoomed out level in, in the context of, of who's interested in what, maybe some of the, the, the career uh, choices or the career fields that, that people are particularly intrigued by and, and maybe some that are even under-enrolled, where, where there are some opportunities that you think might be flying under the radar. What are you noticing? Yeah, I think what you notice is that jobs are changing. Uh, and if you look historically uh, at nursing anyway, nursing was a predominantly female profession. Um, and, you know, the kind of care that nurses provided was very much that traditional hospital-based model. Um, but nursing is an amazing career because you can do so, so many different things. Um, and I started my career as a nurse, uh, and I was originally interested in heart health. Uh, massively specialized, very technical. Um, but of course, uh, there's been shifts over the years to provide more community-based care. So even if you have a condition that traditionally you got healthcare in a hospital, more and more you're getting more of that healthcare out in the community. And I think it's very important for us in terms of uh, educating the health professionals of tomorrow. Um, we want diversity. When we want different um different kinds of uh, students to be admitted into our programs, whether that's by age, whether that's also um, whether indigenous students, whether that's they live in rural settings as well, because we really want the health professionals of tomorrow to reflect the patients of tomorrow as well. Um, and an open university, uh, which means uh, that we uh, can provide your education where you are. You don't have to come uh, like blockbusters to the video store. Um, we're very much trying to provide healthcare uh, education where our students are. Uh, and this allows us to embrace that diversity more so that we can better ensure that the nurse practitioners tomorrow look just like the patients of tomorrow too, because I think that's going to make them better nurse practitioners. Mm. Chantal, I'm going to put you on the spot here because people will always say, and they'll write into us in emails, and they'll say, if you want to fix the system, and this could be any system, uh, but we're talking about healthcare right now, they'll say, you need to talk to the people on the front lines you need to talk to the people that are delivering the service and talking to the patients and the people that are showing up to the clinics or the ERs every single day here's where I put you on the spot what's another area or what's another fix what's another thing if you were being if, if the province if the health minister called you directly today and said based on your more than a decade of experience as an RN based on what you understand about let's say what's happening in your community in the city of Grand Prairie right now what your what your patients what your colleagues are telling you about what's another area where you think the province could tweak something it might be way outside the box it might be a minor little tweak that you think would offer a real improvement to the healthcare delivery in Alberta? That's such a complicated question. Thank you for that one. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, So I think, honestly, at the forefront of my mind, since I, before I even started being an NP student, I think that that nurse practitioners were like the number one. And I was like, this is such an untapped resource. Why are we not looking more into this and how to, you know, better compensate? But I think that, you know, and it may be a bit controversial to say, but I think that the physicians do need some help on their end, too. I think that they're also existing in a struggling system, a system that's kind of set up against them. Um, Family practitioners are some of the hardest working physicians I know, and they face really high overheads, um, a lot of challenges. They have to see an astronomical number of patients just to keep their doors open. Um, So, you know, I do think that our physician colleagues could use 
some support in trying to navigate being a business owner as well as a healthcare provider, because those are two very different things and they have very different priorities. And I think that our next way to support primary care is going to be helping that, you know, getting some backup with having the nurse practitioners be able to work to their full scope and then helping them out, helping them pave the way to being successful business people and successful providers. Uh, Dr. Nobsort, I know that this uh, this report that the, the province uh, commissioned, it, it's known as kind of the MAPS report is what they're calling it, but Modernizing Alberta's Primary Healthcare mm-hmm. System Initiative. They've got about $125 million set aside, which, as funny as it sounds, really isn't a lot when you're talking about healthcare. Mm-hmm. But but they've got about $125 million set aside to implement that uh, or some of the recommendations of the report over the next three years. We don't know what that looks like yet. They haven't really spelled it out. Um, I'm curious to know what opportunities there might be for nurse practitioners uh, um, looking to set up their own clinics. Uh, but there are some people in the chat wondering about funding and what that looks like. And, you know, w- you know what, what say, let's say we have a nurse practitioner, let's say someone like Chantel who's just graduated, ready to go, but may not have access to funding or loans. I'm imagining opening a clinic is, is going to cost a million dollars, million and a half dollars. I have no idea. Um, but but, but it, it would represent a challenge. Do you have any insight into that? Or, or would you have a recommendation on, on what might assist the implementation of this? Well, they haven't. Um, I I don't know. I'm not. Um, I I haven't heard exactly. Yeah, I don't about think anybody knows model. right There's now. There's talk about a, a salary um, per a, a panel of patients. So a panel of patients are are what a provider can manage. So family physicians typically have panels um, anywhere from one thousand patients to two thousand patients and and upward, depending on the, the area of practice. Um, nurse practitioners. The number thrown around has been about eight, eight or nine hundred patients per panel, and then funding that nurse practitioner with basically a salary to manage those patients. Now, what I hope to see are that NPs don't necessarily open up their own practice, but they use that salary to augment clinics might, that are already there. So working with uh, a family physician in, in maybe a family physician's office or in a primary care, care network, so an existing infrastructure and just being able to, many, many nurse practitioners do work in family physician's office already. They're being funded in different sort of innovative ways and, and not the primary care provider, not the, the, um, the sole provider. So this would just... Uh, what I would hope was that the money be used to provide the salary, but link the care together and that NPs and family physicians and other healthcare professionals, um, healthcare professionals on the team and all work together, everybody at their full scope. Mm. Um, Jennifer, I do want to uh, follow up as well. We put Chantel on the spot. I got to put everybody on the spot if we're going to be fair mm. here. Uh, did, did something occur to you? Did you have an immediate idea pop into your brain on another area? It could be a small tweak or a massive change that the province could consider? Well, my my area of research is in long-term care and continuing uh-huh. care. So of course, I always go back to my thoughts about how can we improve care for the older adults, our, our aging population. And just recently, I had a personal experience of having been in an emergency room and seeing the um, the care that is happening there, the fragmented care, the the lack of space for patients, the overwhelming breaking healthcare system. So um, at, in addition to funding, nurse practitioners are looking at different ways to improve primary care. 
I would love to see something more in the long-term care sector, continuing care sector to either increase beds, to provide more hands-on nursing and care aids, um, care to patients as well. Are you a little surprised that the general public doesn't talk about that more? It feels like nobody has to work harder. I mean, well, maybe I should be careful what I say, but it feels like nobody has to work harder to get the attention of the public than people that are working in long-term care. And it's like the the country only really paid attention. Uh, I mean, there were horrific outbreaks, obviously, in Ontario, we remember, and, and I mean, across the country, but there, there were real challenges um, in, in, you know, it, it, generally speaking, in the care of our seniors across the country. We know the population is aging. We know that this is going to be one of the biggest areas of, of concern, of opportunity for employment. Uh, and, and also when it comes to just numbers of Canadians in the healthcare they require, uh, seniors care, if I can use a general phrase, is, is mm-hmm. going to be one of the highest expenditures, line items, and that sounds like a crass way to put it, uh, but it's only going to grow uh, over the next couple of years. Are you a little surprised that we don't pay more attention to that area? Um, I'm not surprised because the precedent has been there over over the years, unfortunately. Um, what I would like to see, and I think this is an excellent opportunity for nurse practitioners as well, is maybe nurse practitioners could take a panel of patients from a long-term care setting or an assisted living setting. And right now the care um, during the pandemic, I, I helped out in the long-term care sector as a nurse practitioner working directly with residents and and um, their families. And the care is quite fragmented right now where there might be 30 different family physicians offering services in a long-term care facility. If we had a few or a group of, of nurse practitioners who were the primary care provider for that group, Think of the the coordination and and um, the excellent care that could be provided with an NP who really knows their their residents and really can provide that holistic and all encompassing care. Think of the reductions in hospital transfers, emergency room use, and just satisfaction with care, being able to provide care for residents and their loved ones in um, for their loved ones' peace of mind in in place. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Clark, we'll, we'll put that that same question in, in front of you. Uh, I'm sure you've got a whole bunch of ideas uh, based on your academic and, and practical career experience on, on additional tweaks, changes, uh, amendments, introductions that you think that the health ministry and the, and the province could consider to improve healthcare delivery. Well, I think the cornerstone of everything here is education. Uh, We need more LPNs, licensed practice nurses, to become registered nurses, and we need more registered nurses to become nurse practitioners. And we know from the research with tens of thousands of people, um, if you receive care from a higher qualified nurse, um, it has a demonstrable difference on your health outcomes. Uh, We know everyone in Canada, it's a good news story in Alberta, we're all living longer, it creates new challenges. Um, but to meet those challenges, I would always look at the research uh, and research time and time again would suggest that education is the way forward here. We need more places um, that the province is supporting and that our universities are supporting to educate the nurses of tomorrow. Um, and we're actively um, engaged and working together with the health system and with government as well to provide these places. Uh, but we're going to need more. 
because we're going to keep, we hope, living longer and better lives. Uh, and the challenges are going to keep coming for the healthcare system. But using our nurse practitioners well, I think this is a great start. Um, I'm looking for more to come in the future. Well, and yeah, and I just I, I just want to reiterate, like to, to, to be kind of the captain obvious here of the four of us, um, you know, the Chantel opens with those statistics that you've got basically one healthcare practitioner for every 10,000 people. And then we look at the fact that over the next 30, 35 years, uh, Alberta's population is expected to double. And uh, it looks to me like there are obviously not only a great need, but in times of need, there are great opportunities, um, great opportunities for people looking to work in healthcare as well. Chantel, is there like a general job posting board online? Like, do you know, can you just, just like to speak plainly, um, if somebody's considering, uh, maybe they're, you know, we'll have 18 year old high school students listening to this. We'll have 25 year old people that are working in careers that they're not super jazzed about. And we'll have 45 year olds that are like wide open to pursuing, uh, new opportunities. You know, if you're certified, qualified as an, as an LPN, as an RN, as a nurse practitioner, I mean, can you, in Alberta right now, is it basically like you're walking right into a job? I mean, you know, some fields are very competitive for people trying to find employment. And in others, I know that there are posted jobs that are sitting vacant for months, if not years. What does the employment landscape look like right now, as far as you know? Um, I think that, you know, it depends what level of nursing you're doing. I think that there are jobs. There's definitely always going to be jobs. There's always going to be patients. Um, again, this announcement with this new proposed funding model is going to make that even more like fruitful for the nurse practitioner community. There's going to be more jobs, um, more opportunities. Um, there have been positions that have been sitting vacant. Um, and, and, you know, that's a complicated issue too, though. That's not just always lack of personnel. Sometimes it's the positions not, you know, very well established. It's not very well funded, those sorts of things. So it's, that's a complicated question and loaded question in itself too. I think for those who are considering, you know, advancing from RN to NP or LPN to RN, you don't have to worry. There will always be jobs. I've never once, you know, even back when I started four and a half years ago, the job prospects were very different. You know, it was very limited number of postings. You had to really keep your ear to the ground. That's changed even in the very brief time that I've been in during my education. Um, so healthcare is moving fast and it's moving forward. And I think that we're so hungry for innovation that you don't have to worry. Like education is not something that you're ever going to regret or is ever going to be wasted. It's just going to, you know, improve your life and your patients' lives. And yeah, I would say go for it. If anyone out there is uh, contemplating, um, now is the time. It's you're, you're kind of catching the wave right now if you're getting into it because I think there's some very exciting times for nurses of all levels coming. Yeah, it doesn't look like anything's slowing down either. That's uh, Chantel Gray, uh, joined by Dr. Jennifer Napsahoda and Dr. Alex Clark. I uh, want to thank the three of you for making time for us on this Real Talk Roundtable, for bringing your personal experience to the table and helping us better understand the implications of this announcement. That's kind of our mandate, and you guys hit it out of the park. We appreciate it. Thank you. You can learn more about what nurse practitioner-led clinics mean for healthcare in Alberta uh, by checking out AthabascaU.ca. We're going to punch this specific article into the show notes on YouTube and on the podcast to make it nice and easy for you to find. Uh, this conversation presented by Athabasca University, Canada's open university, and obviously we're spending a lot of time talking about some of the healthcare opportunities there. If you're looking to launch your career, but there's, of course, so much more than that at AU as well. HR, AI, heck, you can go earn your MBA there. 
with world-class accredited online degrees and courses designed so you can complete your education wherever and whenever it works for you. You can find out more about the AU Advantage by checking out their website, athabascau.ca. If you're envisioning getting your life organized, if you've got clothes piled upon clothes piled upon clothes, you haven't been able to find your favorite book for months, can't remember where you put it and your house is a complete disaster, your laundry room, you'd be mortified if anybody opened the door when they were visiting your house. It sounds like it's time for you to check in with California Closets. They're experts in custom closets and storage solutions for the entire home. You can make the most of your space with their custom organizational systems. It all starts with a free consultation. The best thing to do is check out their website, californiaclosets.ca. And our friends at Kubi Energy wanted to remind you, speaking of career opportunities, in particular in Alberta and BC, if you're currently an electrician, you've got your ticket, or you're an apprentice and you're working toward it, Kubi is literally always hiring, even through the winter months. Uh, Right now, they're interviewing. They're going to be signing contracts in January, and you soon could be joining the team that is growing clean energy in Canada. Kubi is young, they're growing, and they're reshaping Canada's energy portfolio. You can be part of the action. Seize that opportunity by checking out the careers link today at kubienergy.ca. I was loving the live chat today. Uh, A lot of people sharing their own personal experiences with their own family members um, and even some of their own solutions on how they think that healthcare could be improved. And the minute that we started talking about long-term care, uh, Dr. Napsahota there talking about it, we saw people firsthand experiencing, my parents are in this situation. My parents require Mm -hmm. this. My parents are not receiving the healthcare they need here. And and of course, you know, we talk about the sandwich generation on the show all the time. Uh, People that, you know, could be, I don't know, let's say, you know, 30 to 55, 30 to 60 years old that are looking after their kids and they're looking after their parents at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we understand that's going to be more and more of a reality over these next few years. So I think that healthcare discussions like this are, are really valuable. Mm-hmm. And that's a throw to our Friday roundtable. You should check that out as well. Last week, midlife, we yeah. talked about some of that with some great guests as well. I really well. enjoyed that. That was an amazing roundtable as well. Round ta- that was a double roundtable day, our first one back actually. Back to back, Jack. So if you want to get double dose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if people aren't familiar, that's a that's a book. Um, actually, it was sort of a, a the second anthology, Midlife 2.0, yeah. um, from former colleagues at the University of Alberta's Gateway, which is the, the student newspaper there. It's one of the more renowned student newspapers across the country. And yeah, the, a lot of them, most of them working, you know, around the, the sort of the like Y2K era, that you know, that year two. So now all of them are are basically in their 40s and they're coming back together to share these series of essays on reflections at midlife. Um, And we got some really neat. We got a couple of emails from people and I'm always intrigued by these. I love these ones. People that write in and say this is not for air. People will write in and say, please don't share this on the show. This is for you. But they just want to communicate with us how yeah. our content has resonated with them or, or, or how these interviews have resonated with them. And we got several of those after the midlife mm-hmm. episode, which was really, really good. Yeah, it was great. You know, we've got a lot of other feedback as well. And I wanted to remind people, if you don't follow us on uh, Instagram, on TikTok, or on Twitter at RealTalkRJ, uh, make sure you do. Obviously, RealTalkRJ is the handle for all three. And um, we were talking about 
Edmonton's downtown uh, in particular. I mean, we could be talking about any downtown across the country right now. But 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 there was a comment in the live chat uh, where someone basically was talking about homelessness yeah. and how the homeless, quote unquote, the homeless are the problem are like the problem, <laughs> uh, almost like the only problem. And I, and, and I took issue with the comment. And, um, and and Johnny, you 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 whipped it and turned it into a great post, a concise yeah. post, one minute or less that people can check out. But I wanted to read some of the comments. Let's do it. That people have left on this. Uh, I, I basically said, listen, the home homelessness is a symptom. It's not the cause of all of the problems. And I go into it and I develop my own argument on the fly. And, and I love this from El Sueno, uh, who says, Ryan, it's so true. My brother was, quote unquote, homeless for three years. Her brother living on the streets of Toronto. Uh, she says this wasn't due to drugs or alcohol, but completely due to untreated mental illness. He wasn't violent. He wasn't aggressive. He was just a scared and sick person. While we're so lucky to have the health care we do in Canada, it's still so burdensome to somebody experiencing mental health issues. Uh, she says, I wish more people would look at the folks on our streets with compassion and empathy as opposed to judgment. Uh, Brittany says that was a bang on comment. Thank you. This from Willing and Able said, uh, Ryan, I appreciate you continuing to speak about the issue as a lifelong Edmontonian of Chinese descent. Luckily, uh, a first generation born Canadian. It saddens me to see how quick people are to judge and jump to conclusions, especially with challenges within the downtown area and Chinatown, uh, which are pretty much the same in my opinion. I would 100% agree. Uh, Willing and Able says it's a domino effect as people don't just decide, you know, today I want to be homeless. Uh, Willing and Able says, please keep talking about this. Uh, Dubious says we nailed it. Uh, Archer Nimble says very good awareness. And how about this from Shiloh Boo, who says I have a family member who had been unhoused on and off over the past 15 years due to mental health issues, they don't cause any problems. They're not involved in any drugs or any drinking. To characterize people like them as the problem is a huge oversimplification of the issue. Uh, Shiloh says, I'm sure people will read this and ask, well, why don't I fix my family member's problem? But mental health is not something that can be solved unless either the person is willing to help themselves or they're a threat. There needs to be way more resources for people who can't help themselves. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, some folks that are leaving their kind of chirp comments like, you know, Edmonton has problems because of an ultra liberal mayor, uh, you know, the drugs, you know, a lot of times the homeless are not willing to try. I mean, a lot of people sort of impose their own impressions of what they think the reality is. I mean, you can say one thing, but this is it's it, home houselessness, as, as we'll say, is is like super complicated issue. And I, I I take the bus about four times a week now. I see. People on the LRT every day who I know are experiencing addiction and other things and houselessness. And yeah, it's really sad right now. And like you said, it's it's so many things happening downtown right now. Gangs, drugs, violence. Uh, people need jobs. The squeeze still happening. I feel like we're just starting to feel the repercussions from COVID as well. Like people kind of like when we came out of it, it was like, yay, party. We're all back to work and everything. Mm -hmm. But now we're starting to see how it really hurt people. People are piled up in debt. People have lost their homes. People have lost their jobs. People couldn't pay their bills. And now they're ending up on the streets. I will say, though, that glimmer of hope. I, I just want to bring it up again is is and I feel like they get a bad rap sometimes is EPS and EMS trying to deal with people who are in situations like where they're in public places, trying to get warm, trying to sleep. Yeah. You know, they're, they're clearly like in need of food, a shower, all that stuff. You know, I was on the LRT the first time I took it about four weeks ago. Yeah. And there was someone there who was clearly like, 
you know, struggling, uh, struggling, drugs, alcohol, something. They were kind of falling asleep. And for about three stops, you know, nobody wants to be around them. They're kind of like hunched over. And then an EPS officer and an EMS uh, official got on at a stop. And I thought, oh, gosh, here, I don't want to have to talk about all this, this on the show if they just, you know, toss mm. this person out. But they just asked him, hey, are you OK? What are you doing? Let's see your transfer. And I thought, here they go. They're going to kick him off. And they said, hey, this is expired. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And they said, you know what? You don't have any shoes on as well. Why don't you get off at this stop? We're going to get you a pair of shoes and mm. we're going to get you a transfer so you can get wherever else you need to go, which is probably nowhere. But just the fact that I think, you know, EPS, EMS, EPS especially kind of getting, you know, during the summer, they were getting a lot of gruff for well, all the stuff going on in a right? really so, tough spot. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, police officers but they're trying to help. Well, sure. And and I like I understand anytime you talk about the police, I feel like you have to have these caveats where, you're, you know, you you recognize that there are a lot of problems that are inherent in in policing. Totally. And uh, and those cannot be dismissed. Those are real. And, and any uh, person in a position of leadership in policing chiefs and all the way down would would be well served to acknowledge that and address that. And, and part of that is diversity in hiring. Part of that is better training. Mm-hmm. But, but then you, you also recognize that you know, people, I mean, I took issue with somebody a few weeks ago, you know, that that's had it in their bio that, you know, they're working to eliminate policing in the city. Like, you know, people, some people, you know, want defund the police. Other people just think you should just eliminate policing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I can't help. And, and this is my personal opinion, take it or leave it, like it or not. But like, that's a joke. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even, most people all hear them out. Uh, in this case, I would hear you out for pure entertainment purposes yeah. because that's just ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, police are the ones that will roll into situations. I mean, we've just seen charges laid. Uh, did you see this? Manslaughter charges laid and, and gun trafficking charges laid. A 19-year-old that provided the 22 caliber rifle to the 16-year-old that shot and killed two Edmonton police officers oh, earlier really? this year. That was just yesterday. Yeah. Edmonton police laying manslaughter charges on the person who sold the gun or, mm-hmm. or provided I don't know if they sold it but they provided an, an illegal firearm to someone to a 16 year old kid that obviously uh, was not like it goes without saying was not supposed to have that weapon yeah shot somebody at a, at a at a pizza restaurant and then a few days later shot and killed two police officers shot his own mother and then shot himself shot and killed himself so so you know police officers are the ones that roar into these situations mm-hmm. uh, when nobody else would and so we're lucky to have them but that doesn't mean that police are the best or at least not the only solution to responding to mental health crises mm-hmm. as an example and so we're exploring and we've talked about this on the show many times dif- different options on on how that should happen on what mental health supports or partnerships should look like you know which qualified mental health professionals should accompany police mm-hmm. or should even respond to situations on their own in which circumstances that might work yeah and we haven't even touched on firefighters i mean firefighters are working so far outside their scope of what they were hired to do and mm-hmm. you'll never hear a firefighter in the hall say that they, they will never they say do that. Tons. But I, they're a friend of mine. This is anecdotal, but this is a fact. I think I told you this. I yeah. can't remember if it was on air or off. Told me, I said, what was your typical night shift like? Uh, so, you know, and, and he told me, he said, you know what? This was, I don't know, three months ago. He said that in one night shift, he's working out of a downtown hall. Mm-hmm. He said in one night shift, they responded to 14 opioid or 14 drug poisoning calls. 14 Jeez. in one night shift. That's not car accidents. That's not fires. 
right? But everybody, every first responder is being stretched. Mm -hmm. And you look at what's happening with triage and ERs. And I mean, the more I talk about it, the more anxiety I feel. <laughs> yeah. And we need good people to be interested in those careers. We need young, you know, high schoolers and college-age people and even professionals um, to be interested in careers in law enforcement mm -hmm. and fire and EMS and, and, and nursing. And I fear that with the system as strained as it is and with the stresses that come along with it, that a lot of people will go, you know what, there's easier ways to make 80 grand a year. Yeah. And like you were talking about yesterday, the symptoms and causes, they're dealing with the causes, right? It's hard for them. Like they can't affect the symptoms. That's outside of their scope. But I'm glad that, like you said, there are things they're doing to try and elevate that by having mental health professionals come with them on calls and stuff like that. But all this defund the police stuff, like I, for me, it's when I think of that, I think of like, maybe we shouldn't have tanks and stuff like that. And I know it's more in the States, but you know, but like for me, defund the police isn't like, let's have less police on the streets. For me, it's like, you know, the things that are extreme. But right? even so. then there was there was, uh, you know, there was uh, the Edmonton police said and, and I and I, you know, police have to be careful uh, when they're you know, they, they have their Instagram accounts and TikTok and it's a great recruiting tool and it's a great way to some of them are fun to meet the public yeah. where they're at. I mean, a classic example of that is when the police will say, help us name our new class of canines, yeah. help us name our dogs. And they'll say this. This is like EPS canine, like, you know, growler or like what? No, they typically have much nicer names. <laughs> They're, this is like Larry, except Larry's going to like hunt you down if you're stealing cars. But but then, you know, there there get to be the gray areas where, you know, you get a big new armored vehicle mm -hmm. and the police will, you know, if you post a photo, they got to be real careful about that. And they're doing less and less of that, you know, for police to say, check out this shiny new armored vehicle. And people will say, well, yeah, like, do our police really need the, the militarization of the police? Do the police really need this? Mm -hmm. And you might argue no until, you know, some guy that's been you know, you know, abusing his wife for 25 years and, you know, has a drinking problem, all of a sudden locks himself in the house with her and their kid and has a shotgun mm -hmm. and the police are responding. And I mean, how quickly we forget, you know, as an example off the top of my head, Constable Daniel Woodall, yeah. you know, who shows up as, as a part of the, you know, member of the EPS hate crime unit uh, to, to execute a search warrant and is shot in the back through the door and killed on mm -hmm. duty. Um, I don't, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, the police shouldn't have these 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 tools. The police shouldn't. What, what use do the police have for this armored vehicle until all hell breaks loose? And then what's the plan? Um, so I find that, you know, if one thing, uh, somebody wrote us an email. This was within the last month, and I really appreciated it. This was one of those emails they said, this is not for air. They said the thing that they appreciate most about Real Talk is it will seek nuance, you know? And, and, and sometimes on this show, we will plant a definitive flag, and sometimes we'll yeah. go, eh, there's a little bit of this, and there's a little bit of this. And I think that that's how most regular folks talk. I think most subjects need nuance. We, we don't have a lot of nuance, especially on social media these days. When you're talking about police funding, there's a lot of nuances. You can't just say, you know, defund the police, take away all the money. I mean, yeah. it's just, it just seems ridiculous to me. And I do think the majority of them are, are doing a good job. And that's why I brought up that story, because in my mind, I think that most people like me would think, oh, something bad's going to happen here. And it was the 100% the exact opposite. They helped the person 100%. But at the same time, how much can they help them? Give them some shoes? And, and a bus pass to get back on the LRT, it's not going to 
you know, take them out of poverty, but it's the best they can do with what they're working. You with. know what, though? I'm, I'm really happy to hear about that, John, because a lot of people, you know, I mean, you know, for example, one, one of the things that people will talk about that's a very valid point is that one of the things that you can do in a bad way to heap you know, to perpetuate poverty, mm-hmm. to heap poverty on poverty is to start ticketing yeah. the marginalized population or kick them you out know, into the you, cold. You know, you're going to you know? you're, you're going to you're going to write a ticket uh, to a person that, that doesn't have anywhere to go. That's riding transit without Not a ticket. Like, how, ticket. how are they going to pay the ticket? Yeah. And then what? Then they're, they're going to have a bunch of, you know, they'll have warrants out. And then all of a sudden you're putting them Just into piles up. Like, what's the point? Yeah. Right. And, 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 and here's where that nuance is as well. I understand a, a business owner, a shopkeeper that doesn't want to have. Like, you know, people huddled up in the in the doorway of their shop when mm-hmm. they arrive in the movie, they want to have customers. The human behavior is that people get uncomfortable around that. Um, it hurts their business. And so I understand 100 percent the shopkeeper's perspective. But you also understand the person's perspective that has nowhere to go. Where do we expect them to go? What are they to mm-hmm. do? Shelters are full. You can't get into a lot of the shelters, even if they're not full, based on where you're at. Some of them will require sobriety, as an example. And for mm-hmm. some people, that's just not happening. Um, and so we need to be able to have these tough conversations. Well, thank God we're having a, a mild winter here. I'm, I'm sure once we <laughs> get the now. numbers after the winter, I, they'll be better for houseless people You know, yeah. freezing to death, at least. Yeah. It's been a little mild for us here. Wyatt Wally on the chat says law enforcement needs to be fewer guys with guns and more frontline social or mental health type workers. Uh, why do we have to have so many so-called cops that are just there to respond? We need more people out there actually helping. I, that from Wally. That. I understand yeah. the spirit of the comment. Um, let's show the video here on, on my Twitter. I posted this uh, back on November 9th. I don't know if people saw it. It's just a, a quick shot out of my car. Uh, you know, it's only about 15 seconds. Uh, but I saw this as I was riding in um, into Edmonton's downtown. Oh, a, a police officer with the cruiser pulled over, just helping a civilian, helping a, a, a guy change his tire. And and it's like not some groundbreaking, profound moment. But I just thought that that was neat to see. It was neat not to part see of him. his job description. It's not part of his job description at all. And he easily could have driven by. And there, I'm sure there are a million other things that that officer needed to do. But that was just like for as many times from here as we crack on cops. Uh, and it's easy to do, um, and and it feels like it, people are pretty polarized on this. You know, there, there's people that are you know sort of like basically to speak frankly, real talk. You know, call them pigs. Um, and then there's people that have the like back the blue stickers on their car. Mm-hmm. There's like these two camps, these two factions: people that can't stand the police and people that will go to the wall for the police. Again, and like- I think every once in a while it's important to just say, I saw a police officer doing not for the glory. Uh, they didn't see me. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know what I was. They were doing that for the glory. Uh, no. They were doing it to help a guy get to work in the morning. Yeah. We need the nuance. I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, I understand we need to keep an eye on things and we need to keep, you know, police officers accountable. Yeah, there's 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 some people who, you know, there's wrongdoing in every part of this. I didn't want to say the word what? <laughs> at every level of, you know, where, where there's power. Sometimes people abuse it. But what I'm of saying course, is that yeah. this was a moment when I was I was like taking the LRT for the first time in like seven years. And I, I just felt like, wow, this could have totally gone the other way. And uh, out of their job description, went and got a guy a pair of shoes and et cetera. So huh, I tra- thought it was good. Tracy says, if I'm a victim of a home invasion, I want police with all the toys. Please. To come help us out. Please. I'm with you, I'm with you Tracy. 100%. I heard a gunshot last week on the south side, which is where we're in the Chappelle area. Very, very Pretty rare. And the first thing my wife thought was, should we call the police? And I said, could be a firecracker or something. But this is the thing. Like, you want less people 
to be able to attend to these things? No. I, I don't think so. But. The, but but I think in some in some circumstances where people talk about the, the, the defund the police movement, um, you'll hear people talking about refunding the police, like refund or, or consider a different funding model where some of that, because the cops are always very well funded, right? Mm. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, this show is sort of a prairie podcast. We're, we're a Western Canadian show, but, you know, every jurisdiction, every city, every community is going to have its own property tax reality. Um, Edmonton City Council has just completed uh, the budget, and I don't know if you saw this. this was just yesterday. Budget? Well, the, the 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 property tax increase, which is the number that everybody cares about, because yeah. the police budget's going up, salaries are going up, not mm-hmm. just for cops, uh, for a lot of people, and, and and there was some some back pay as well that factored into mm-hmm. it. And so the you know the city of Edmonton's looking at tens of millions in budget shortfall. So the property tax increase this next year is over six and a half percent, which is big. Yeah. Like six and a half percent is. Big, yeah. but there's some communities uh, in our province and elsewhere that are looking at double-digit increases, and some of them are rumored to be going as high as thirty percent. Uh, but the police are never underfunded, and it's always an interesting dynamic to see at council when the chief of police, whose job is largely political, same as a fire chief, is going to go in front of council and argue for increased funding. And it's easy for the police to make those arguments, right? We mm-hmm. need to better serve our communities, especially as the city grows. You want to make sure that the services are there. But a lot of folks will say, well, maybe we need to reimagine where some of those funds are going because you're talking about millions and millions of dollars. And some of those funds should probably or could probably be better invested in mental health workers, caseworkers, support workers that could accompany police sure. to certain calls that may, you know, I don't know what the, the model would look like. That's certainly not my area of expertise. Would they be on staff with the a city police service or would they operate independently? I don't know. Um, but but something where some of that funding would be directed to better address or to better uh, employ people with specific training mm-hmm. when it comes to mental health supports. Because that, yeah, we need that. That happens a lot when they respond to a situation where someone is clearly, you know, you have to talk them down and maybe screaming at them obviously isn't the best answer. But I think we've talked about this before. The people we think should be paid the biggest money, people yeah. people who operate on brains. And uh, I, I definitely think people who dodge bullets, and uh, I, I know they're never going to get it, but teachers. Man, I wish teachers made more. Yeah. I wish they were just, you know? Well, and I look, everybody will look at the teachers, and not everybody. Some critics will look at the teachers and say, well, it must be nice to get the whole summer off. And then I just think, like, if you spend, like, we used to we do this read-in week where we'll go and read to classes and you know, re- read a book, and I'm like... <laughs> and you're there 20 spent, minutes, I'm like, and you're I'm like, there 20 <laughs> minutes, and I'm... <laughs> bagged yeah. i'm like can you like i'm sorry and i love i'm a proud father i love my kids are great i love Mentally, kids but like you draining. couldn't you couldn't pay me enough to be a teacher <laughs> my mom's a teacher my mother-in-law is a teacher my two aunts are teachers i have so much respect for teachers that is not that would have been my career choice if i wanted and it was not my career choice <laughs> lorraine says i know police officers that do a lot of good work but they're so mentally beat up by that defund the police movement and the hate directed at them that a lot of them are ready to quit. Well, that they must from feel Lorraine. It every day when they go to work. You yeah. know what I mean? They must be thinking. And that. MA is is bang on in all caps on our chat says poverty. That's what needs to be addressed. 100%. Uh, Jean says, what about the military? Absolutely 100%. Um, if you missed our roundtable back on, uh, I think it was November 10th. Yeah, November 10th, the day before Remembrance Day. That was a, a, a really, really meaningful hour that we spent with three different people talking about you know, their roles in the Canadian military, their service, um, and their perspectives on the military moving forward. It was really, really great. That was our November 10th episode of Real Talk. 
Our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you, uh, number one, uh, we're just uh, a short time away uh, from the first of the month. I can't believe it. December 1st, if you're listening to this on Thursday, it's tomorrow. It's Friday. Uh, You know what that means. It means 15% off all grocery purchases, $75 or more at any of the 16 Friesen Brothers across the province of Alberta. But we also wanted to remind you that Friesen Brothers has gift buying opportunities, making it easier for you with their hand-picked gift boxes all items carefully chosen to suit all tastes and all budgets. You can also customize a Friesen Brothers gift box to a theme, a person, or an occasion. The gift box is perfect for that person in your life that has everything. You can find more information online at Friesen.com gifts. I want to give a shout out to our friends at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. You know, they've got so much going on right now. We want to congratulate them on their brand new location. This company is growing, and I'm not surprised one bit to see it. Our dogs, Moses and Monroe, have been eating Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food for years, well before we had a partnership with this family-owned company. Why? Because we've seen the health impact of that quality raw food and it's not just for dogs they've got a lot of options for cats as well you can check out the shop now link at granddog.ca learn more about alternative proteins their beef chicken turkey dog food the cat raw food and then supplements as well including happy days dairy raw fermented goat milk i love the four leaf rover products as well including dried bone for homemade diets you can learn more today at granddog.ca don't forget the promo code real talk knocks 10 percent off your first time order delivered to your door if you're in Calgary, Edmonton, or Central Alberta. And while we may not be thinking about landscaping right now, I know we're all just bracing like Johnny was just saying for the cold. We're just waiting to get walloped by that first snowstorm. Depending on where you are, though, some of our friends and neighbors in Western Canada are already under a foot and a half of snow. Here's the deal. If you want to have that new outdoor kitchen or that water feature ready to go by spring or to entertain, maybe it's your anniversary, a big birthday, or a graduation coming up next summer, you're going to want to get in touch with Eden Landscaping today. A custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. You can check out their work online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Natural beauty, stonescapes, retaining walls, excavation, whatever it is, Eden Landscaping does it and they do it better than anybody else. You can find Eden, of course, again at landscapeedmonton.ca. I know you want to get to the flamethrower, but do you want to throw that Elon clip in there before it becomes it? non-existent over the weekend? Why don't yeah. we do this? This is absolutely wild. So the, so the New York Times um, hosts this, this basically a gathering once a year, right? And, um, and, and so it, it's, it's called Deal Book. And at Deal Book 2023, which is hosted by Andrew Ross Sorkin, they talk to, to leaders in, in industry and in innovation. And in this edition at DealBook 2023, uh, X owner, uh, SpaceX owner, Tesla's, uh, you know, the, the face of Tesla, Elon Musk, is, is talking to Andrew Ross Sorkin, the journalist, about some recent developments, in, including Disney and other major corporations pulling advertising from Twitter, from X, based on... Uh, what are perceived to be anti-Semitic comments, uh, or at least Elon Musk giving anti-Semitic comments a pass on Twitter. And so uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin asks Elon about this. This was on Wednesday. This is this week. Um, It's about a two-minute clip, and he basically says, what's your game plan? Like, without advertising dollars, Twitter's going to be in real trouble. And Elon 
took it in a direction that I don't think anybody expected. Obviously, you know that there's a public perception that, and and you're clarifying this now, um, but there's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will. That this had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. <laughs> Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. How do you think then about the economics of, of X? If, 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 if part of the underlying model, at least today, and maybe it needs to shift, maybe the answer is it needs to shift away from advertising. Um, if, if you believe that this is the one part of your business where you will be beholden to those who... Uh, have this view, what do you do? F, Y. I I understand that, but there's a reality too. (laughs) Right? Yes. No, no. I I mean, Linda Yaccarino's right here, and she's got to sell advertising. Absolutely. So, um, no, no, totally. So, so, no, no, actually, what what this advertising boycott is uh, going to do, it's going to kill the company. And do you think that the company- I, I, but, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are those advertisers. I imagine are going to say they're going to say we didn't kill the company. Oh yeah, they're going to say tell it to the, tell it to Earth. But they're going to say that they're going to say Elon that you killed the company because you said these things, and that they were inappropriate things, and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. Right. That's see, that's and, what and they're going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. Okay, this, then this... Dude, he, like, was he, was he on a bender the night before? He's a little sketchy. So when he says, uh, go fuck yourself, and then he says, hi, Bob, if you're in the audience, like, he's speaking to Bob Iger, who is the CEO of Disney. Bro. Like, telling the CEO of Disney to go <laughs> fuck yourself. Who and, isn't just Disney now? This is a huge conglomerate that owns, like... Well, that's just one example. Everything. That's you. You, you might yeah. as well say it to, to Apple and to all the other oh, companies yeah. that have pulled their advertising. So, so as 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 Sorkin says, and is quite right in the interview, like Linda Yaccarino's got to sell advertising. She's the CEO of Twitter. She's, She's the sitting CEO right of there. X. She's sitting right there. <laughs> Going like, so did you see her tweet? So after she says, like, this is right after she's, and man, talk about carrying water for somebody. She says, today, Elon gave a wide-ranging and candid interview at DealBook. He also offered an apology, an explanation, and an explicit point of view about our position. Uh, Says the CEO, X is enabling an information independence that's uncomfortable for some people. We're a platform that allows people to make their own decisions. And here's my perspective, she says, when it comes to advertising. X is standing at a unique and amazing intersection of free speech and Main Street. And the X community is powerful and is here to welcome you. To our partners who believe in our meaningful work, thank you. 
That's some heavy lifting. Yeah, and it's it's not helping. I mean, what is seventy five million dollars? I think they lost this year in advertising already. Which I mean, to a billionaire, probably isn't a lot. But I mean, no one's trying to blackmail you. They're just kind of holding you responsible for keeping the the gates on this thing that is clearly running. Like I told you, you're probably the same. I'm not on there as much as I used to because everyone with a check mark is not the person who should have a check mark. Uh, there's just a lot more negativity on there. It's and everyone's being allowed to say whatever they want. And I think that's what he was alluding to. Is just kind of like, hey, if there's any semitism, if there's all this other stuff, are you are you going to keep a lock on it? And he was just like, G F Y G F Y. Which like, I mean, I love Kathy's comment. She goes, "Well, that interview got awkward in a hurry." <laughs> really? Justin says, "This dude is disconnected from reality." I mean, the fact that forget about the seventy-five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, if a company's buried, I mean, this is forty-four billion that he paid mm-hmm. for Twitter, and I think that some people believe. I mean, his biggest backers, obviously, Elon Musk has has enormous an enormous fan base. Uh, people that believe he can do no wrong. People that believe that that you know the, that the genius that any genius is just wired a little bit different, and of course they're eccentric, and of course they're unpredictable, and of course. They don't think like the rest of us. I mean, even the way he talks, like when he says, mm-hmm. like, let's see what Earth thinks about that. It just it just re- it reiterates that he sees just, he sees the planet different than everybody else. He's right. Like it, that CEO from Don't Look Up. He's just so disconnected now, I yeah. think, from reality. And that's how you get when you're a billionaire and like you can do whatever you want. But I and I just don't think someone like that and good for him for having a CEO. I hope she has the reins on thing, but you could see Elon walking into Twitter or X on any given day and just be like, can't you see him just running around like the devil wears Prada, just yelling things like we should do this. We should take the whole roof off the Like he's just, that was what it was like. And when he first showed up, I remember just like mass layoffs, which, which is not unusual when there's a new acquisition and new leadership and that kind of a thing. Mm. But, but, Twitter kind of went back and like rehired a lot of the people because they were like, you know, this we're not going to be able to function. So we'll see what it looks like in two years from now. Uh, I don't know. A lot of people. I mean, I I, I remembered I, I didn't finish my thought. Like he's got his big fans that believe that one day or maybe someday soon that Twitter's biggest source of revenue will be subscriptions and that you know that they'll completely change their revenue model and that they won't have to worry about advertisers. Uh, but I don't think. Well, that's if, obviously if, how he's making up. But if the you're doing revenue right like like Twitter or Meta, like Facebook, Instagram mm-hmm. does, which is not insignificant at all. No, you never want to just. I mean, we know firsthand. You don't ever. Tell your advertisers to GFY. <laughs> it's a very bad idea. Hey, California closet. Don't say it. Don't even say it. Although I, I know you picked the one that would get a real laugh out of it. So, but don't even go there. Don't even go there. Speaking of sponsors that we would run through walls for every single Friday, our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road, give us an opportunity to blow off a little steam. Uh, Real talkers, here is where you can bring the heat. We want your hot takes, right? Courtesy of the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, we present the Flamethrower. These are real emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This one from Lorraine. I love this. She writes in nice and simple, says, how about as uh, humankind, how about worldwide we forget about artificial intelligence and spend more of our time concentrating on fixing natural stupidity? We have an abundance of work to resolve there. 
Lorraine says, keep it up. Thanks for all the work you do to keep it real. Thank you, Lorraine. This one from Mr. Dad, who didn't like us commenting on Edmonton City Councilor Jennifer Rice. Of course, she's got to reckon with a whole lot of allegations right now, as you may know if you've been watching this show or reading the papers over the past week. Mr. Dad says, Jespo, I was very disappointed with your coverage of the allegations against Councilor Rice. I have no idea how he tre- how she treats her staff, says Mr. Dad. <laughs> My words now. Don't let that get in the way of you taking issue with it, Mr. Dad. But still, back to his email says, but if you want to witness truly indisputable and despicable acts of tyranny, entitlement, and bullying, I encourage you to watch the public hearings for Edmonton's new zoning bylaw that went down in October. Hundreds of citizens attended this event at their own time and expense to voice their concerns with this half-baked plan. Most of these concerns centered around the curious lack of regulatory control over ensuring affordable and sustainable development outcomes, despite those issues being framed as the main arguments for triggering the zoning bylaw overhaul. He says, I was shocked and disgusted by City Council's condescending, combative, and dismissive reactions to this feedback. The only councillors that demonstrated any level of respect or understanding were Jennifer Rice and Karen Principe. Councillor Rice has won the support of many Edmontonians and maybe one of only a few councillors to survive the next election, despite the current narrative against her. She deserves immense credit for standing up to her tone-deaf chambermates, and I question the timing of this smear campaign as a form of punishment and intimidation to silence her. In the future, please resist prematurely passing judgment on others based on one-dimensional gossip. That from Mr. Dad. Typically, on the flamethrower, I like to read it and move on, but I can say a few things. If you think that I make my comments without insider information and credible reports from people that I'm not going to go any further in describing who they are, but it's 20 years in this field, pal. You got another thing coming. And second of all, I would guarantee you that she's not going to win the next election. I would guarantee you that she's going to get beat the next election based on the fact that she's burned through 19 staffers in two years. And I think you're right on one thing, Mr. Dad. Half this council is going to lose its job next election. This one from Emily, who says, give me a break. All this talk about political parties at City Hall, political parties at the municipal level. I know my city councillor. She's been amazingly responsive to every single one of my concerns, down to the nitty gritty details, like why they cut down a big tree in front of the library. I consistently see her out and about, opening supportive housing, at community league events, at art fair, on the LRT. I like her ideas and her work ethic and availability. She didn't name the counselor, by the way, or we'd give the counselor credit. But Emily says, I love this, and I hate to think that she would have to follow a party line just because. No thanks. I've met the mayor on a few occasions. I have nothing but respect. Other past counselors, not so much. My point is that they were all present, attentive, and responsive, meeting and greeting even after they got elected. And I don't think that would be the case if they were part of an armchair political party. No thanks. That from Emily. This one from Derek, who says, all this talk about an Alberta pension plan, Jespo. I'm from Ontario, but I did live and work in Calgary for 11 years. I'm now back in Ontario. Good morning and happy uh, holidays to our real talkers in other provinces across the country. Derek says, we have a family with no plans to leave Ontario. That 50% or whatever it is that's being floated by proponents for the APP includes like 50 grand that's been contributed by me and employers on my behalf. I contribute more now as a tradesperson in Ontario and I don't plan on leaving. I won't stand for my pension balance for my years in Alberta going into an APP should they create one. Albertans should remember there are many workers like 
like me, who Danielle Smith uses to inflate her numbers, and the ones who buy into her plans would be stupid to forget this. That from Derek. And this from Justin, who's taking aim at the town of Westlock in Alberta. You may have heard that Westlock is going to be voting on banning pride flags and pride-painted sidewalks. Justin says, over the past week, since we read about the town council voting on removing this crosswalk and banning the flags, I've been absolutely embarrassed by friends from all around the world commenting on this. The fact that you're using time and resources on this vote is a disgrace. Comments I've been texted by friends and family have been like, is this actually happening? Or am I seeing this out of context? Another comment I saw was, sad to see how homophobic this town continues to be. Uh, Justin says, I'm a young adult, and I moved here roughly 10 years ago, and I'm raising a young family here. And the fact that there are kids here in schools that are already struggling because they have a feeling that they're not the same as some of their other classmates, probably scared to come out to their parents, and now having to understand why people who don't even know them would hate them just because they have feelings that they can't control. This town is like every small and large town in Alberta that has bigots and radical behavior, but by having the town council not stand up for what's right for all Westlock citizens is absolutely unacceptable. Justin says this town and its council are being made out to be a joke across the rest of Alberta and across the country this past week, and I'm not even going to try to defend it. The fact there's already going to be a vote means you have already failed kids and adults in this town, but I'm sure hoping that council realizes the damage they've already done and votes to keep everybody included. That from Justin. You can send us your flamethrower to talk at ryanjesperson.com every single Friday or this week, because Friday's off, it's on a Thursday. It's presented by the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. I got a hosting gig tomorrow. Johnny's got work to do as well, which means the next episode of Real Talk is going to be on a Monday. We'll check in with Charles Adler. Plus, we're going to talk to an academic who's going to talk to us about this new deal. You see the $100 million deal around C-18? It looks like the feds are making peace with the big social media platforms, but... That deal was on offer a year ago, so who screwed up and what are the implications? That's coming up on Monday's Real Talk. We hope you'll join us then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Terry Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.